But we're going to begin in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, then if you have a pen or a pencil, underline the next two words, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Those two words, according to our preposition, the little Greek word kata, and the word kata always carries the idea of something that's coming down so hard, you would say it is dominating, it is subjugating, or it is conquering, so that the verse really carries this idea. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, being dominated, being conquered, being subjugated by the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And it's like he's reaching out to lay hold of life and is making a faith declaration that in spite of what is going on around him, he is dominated, he is subjugated, and he is conquered by the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And this was very important that he began this epistle in this way because in this particular moment, the early church was surrounded by death. Something happened in the year 64 which changed the history of early Christianity. Nero had come to the throne. And the first five years that Nero was the emperor, they were called the golden years. He was benevolent. He was good. But during that time, he was under the mentorship of his mother and his teachers. But about five years into being the emperor, he decided he no longer wanted to be under the control of his mother, who was quite manipulative. So he had his mother killed. Then he had his teachers, Seneca and Lucia, killed. Then he began to eliminate the senators that had a voice in his life. And when he finally felt he was freed of the shackles of all of these authoritative voices, Nero began to declare that he was God in the flesh and began to require that the Roman Empire worship him. And the Roman Senate went along with him until one day when he came before the Senate and he said, seeing that I am Nero, and I'm also the greatest architect that has ever lived. I would like to design and build for me a new palace in the very heart of Rome. And he designated the area where he wanted to build it, which happened to be where all the senators lived. And he said, I'd like to tear down all your homes in order to erect a home that is befitting of somebody like me. And the home that he wanted to build was so large it would comprise more than 300 acres. It was so outlandish. The entire exterior was to be veneered in mother of pearl, and then on top of the mother of pearl was to be veneered layers of gold. That's why later it was called the Golden Palace. And it really was a home that comprised more than 300 acres, which is bigger than most of us can even conceive. And right in the middle of it, he eventually erected a statue of himself, which was called the Colossus. It was a 90-foot statue of Nero. And later when the Senate tore down his palace, they left that statue standing there. And on the side of his former palace, they built the Colosseum. And that's why it was called the Colosseum, because of the Colossus, the statue of Nero, which stood there. But when he first presented his vision to the Senate, they said, no. We will not let you tear down our homes to build yourself this house. And he was so infuriated that he met his servants at his villa just outside the city of Rome, distancing himself from what was about to happen so no one would connect him to the crime. And he charged his servants to go back into the city of Rome and to begin a fire in the circus, which was the stadium where all the chariot races happened, and to do it on a day when the circus was not 
operating so that no one would know that a fire had begun. And by the time the city of Rome realized a fire had been started, it was too late because now the fire was raging out of control and it burned for more than six days. At the end of the six days, they thought they had extinguished it. But in Rome, there were 350,000 slaves who lived in little houses which were made out of wood, hay, and stubble. And because they were made out of wood, hay, and stubble, they went up in a puff of smoke and the embers began to burn and the wind began to carry the embers and the fire reignited. And some scholars say the fire was not fully extinguished until after 30 days. And at the end of that period, the only buildings that remained were the buildings made out of stone or precious stones. And by the way, this is what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When he says, if any man build his life with wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to go up in a puff of smoke. But if you build with precious stones or if you build with durable materials, you can pass the test of any fire that will ever come into your life. And in the early world, there were many fires. And the fires always burned up anything that was made out of wood, hay, and stubble. But if you built with durable materials, you could survive a fire. And really, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is asking us, how are you building your life? Are you building sloppily, fastly, just throwing up shanties of wood, hay, and stubble? Or are you building your life, your fi family, your finances, something that will endure and pass any test? But when all of those shanties went up in smoke, suddenly 350,000 people in the city of Rome were displaced. And news began to circulate in the streets that Nero is the one who ordered the fire. So the Senate called him to the Senate house, the very same Senate which is still standing in the Roman Forum in the heart of Rome today. He walked into that building and the Senate began to charge him with arson and they were going to execute him for burning down the city of Rome. And Nero said, how could you think that I, Nero, would burn down my beloved city? I can tell you who has done this. My spies have brought me information. And the senator said, tell us who did this. He said, that new group in town that had been standing on our street corners preaching called Christians. They are behind this fire. And Nero had a grudge against Christians already because they refused to burn incense to his image and to worship him. He had been looking for a reason to eliminate them, and now he was going to blame the great fire of Rome on Christians. And number one, he said, Christians are lawbreakers. And in a certain way, he was telling the truth. Because at that particular time, you could not assemble like we're assembling today unless you had the approval of the government. And because the government did not approve of Christians, every time they met to worship and to study their Bibles, they were breaking the law. But they had to decide whose law they were going to obey, the law of man or the law of God, which commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And the rule then and the rule now is you obey man's law as long as it doesn't violate God's law, but when it violates God's God's law, then you have to live by a higher law. And so they literally broke the law and they were meeting together in their meetings. Number two, he said in their illegal underground meetings, they're planning the subversion of the government. They're talking about another kingdom and they're talking about another king 
And he was right. They were talking about the kingdom of God, and they were talking about King Jesus, but he portrayed this as people meeting in illegal underground meetings where covertly they were planning the subversion of the government, the introduction of a new king. And then number three, he said, as if that is not enough, in their illegal underground meetings, they also practiced something called the love feast. And they did. And the love feast is when they shared communion, They shared a meal together, a time of fellowship. But you have to remember that when Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire, it was a pagan world. Now, friends, I understand that we're living in a very dark chapter of history right now. And it's going to get darker. But at that time, there had been no light. The only light in the world had been through the Jewish people. Now the Christians were beginning to preach, so more light was coming. But just imagine if you had grown up in a world where there was no Bible, there was no voice of God, and you were ruled simply by paganism, a world where nothing was deemed to be wrong. Every kind of sexuality was accepted. And in fact, in the Roman world, the word sin did not even exist. That was a concept that was developed by the Jews and by the early preachers of the gospel. They didn't even have the concept of sin. Everything you wanted to do was all right as long as it didn't hurt somebody else. And because of that, there were rampant kinds of spiritual perversion in the Roman Empire. And Nero himself was married to two men while he ruled the empire. And now a man who's married to two men is accusing Christians of a love feast, which he portrayed as a sexual orgy beyond anything these pagans had ever participated in. And whatever the pervert said about Christians was so horrendous they believed him. Then he said number four, in addition to their illegal underground meetings, in addition to their plans to subvert the government, and in addition to their sexual perverseness, Christians are cannibals. And they said, well, give us proof. He said, the leader of their sect, Jesus of Nazareth, said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And on the basis of those words, he charged them with cannibalism and was so convincing that even after the death of Nero, the early church fought allegations of cannibalism for 200 years after that. And last, he said, in addition to all of that, we should have been listening to these Christians because they've been standing on our street corners publicly preaching that one day in the future a big fire would come which would try the world and judge the world. We should have listened to them because they were giving us a signal that they were going to burn down the city of Rome. And by the time that he was finished, he was so convincing, the senators believed him. And for the first time in the history of Christianity, a legal assault began against the faith. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you will read there are other periods of persecution. But in the book of Acts, they were all instigated by Jews. It was a religious persecution. This was a legal, government-sponsored persecution, and the charge against Christians was not faith. They were charged with arsony, arsony, because they had burned down the city of Rome. And that is why Christians at that time were burned at the stake. Romans punished you commensurate with your crime. So if you were a thief, they cut your hand off. But if you were an arson, 
then they burned you with fire because you were responsible for arsony. So Christians begin to be burned, not charged with being Christians, but they were charged with arsony. And Christians began to be rounded up in the city of Rome, and then it moved south to the city of Alexandria in northern Egypt. They began to round up Christians there. Then it moved to Antioch, where really the church began. Christians began to be rounded up and finally moved to the city of Ephesus, which was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And that is where Timothy was pastoring his church. And now Christians there are being rounded up. And not only that, because Paul is such a notable believer, his name is on the top of the list. So the Roman government found him preaching in the city of Troas, which was the newer name of the ancient city of Troy. They arrested him, brought him to the city of Rome, and charged him with arsony. And now Paul is sitting in prison. He was first put on trial, put back in prison, where he's now being held for a second trial. In fact, if you go to chapter 4, Paul refers to his first trial. Look at it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He says, at my first answer... That word answer, the Greek word apologia, my first verbal defense at my first trial, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. And here we find that Paul, in this very intense moment, thought that he could rely on his closest friends, and one by one, they abandoned him. In fact, the word forsook means to forsake in a circle. It really paints a picture of Paul standing outside the court just before the trial begins, encircled by his friends. He turns to one and says, will you stand with me? That one leaves. How about you? 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 By the time Paul made the full circle, he found himself standing by himself. Everyone knew if they remained affiliated with him, they would also be charged with arson. So one by one, all of his friends begin to bail out. And Paul says, all men forsook me. And then he says, I pray that it may not be laid to their charge. Verse 17, a fabulous revelation. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. The Greek says, the Lord stepped forward in my defense and strengthened me. And here we find, if everybody else bails out on you, the Lord will step forward in your defense. But now Paul is sitting in prison, the worst prison in Rome, awaiting his next trial. And while he's awaiting his next trial, the whole city of Rome is rejoicing because one of the chief arsonists is now in jail, incarcerated in the city of Rome. They didn't have the internet, they didn't have radio, they didn't have televisions, but they had news walls where the news was posted. And now all over the city of Rome, people are reading the fake news. There's nothing new. And the fake news was saying the chief arsonist has been arrested and is in prison. And because Paul is so deep in prison, he cannot even say a word in his defense. He cannot say a word. And the whole city of Rome is rejoicing over the fake news that he has been arrested. And while he's sitting in prison, he has received a letter from Timothy from the city of Ephesus where the persecution is also raging. It is raging. Now, you may ask, how could he receive a letter if he was in prison? Because he was a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, even though he was in prison, he had certain 
rights. And one of those rights was the right to receive mail. Now he has received a letter. It has come from Ephesus. It was sent by Timothy. And Paul has unrolled that scroll. And he is reading what Timothy has written to him. And we know exactly what Timothy wrote to him in that letter. Because 2 Timothy is Paul's response to that letter. And when we read the book of 2 Timothy, particularly verse 7, we find that Timothy has been seized with a spirit of fear. He is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. His church members are dying for their faith. They're being burned alive. He's also deeply, deeply wounded because people that he raised in the faith, people that he discipled, that he thought would always be faithful in this moment of intensity have bailed out and walked out on him. And my friends, we all know that real intense moments always reveal who really is your friend and who is not. And many of these who Timothy had raised up were fair weather friends and when the weather turned foul, they abandoned the Lord, they abandoned the church and Timothy is wounded. He is so wounded that now he doesn't know how he's going to pastor his church. It's very difficult when a pastor has been wounded by his congregation because he can't walk in love. He needs to walk in love if he's going to pastor those people. But Timothy is now seized with a spirit of fear. And Paul also tells us in verse 7 that he's no longer walking in power. You can't walk in fear and power at the same time. And Timothy knows if there's a knock on his door and if the authorities arrest him, they will make his death more miserable than anyone else's in order to terrify the surviving believers and chase them back into their pagan temples. And Timothy knows if they lay their hands on me, what they will do to me will simply be horrific. And now operating under a spirit of fear, Timothy has written a letter to Paul. So when you come to verse 2, Paul writes to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Usually when Paul writes his letters, he simply says grace and peace be unto you. But in this particular case, he inserts the word mercy between grace and peace. He only does that three times in his epistles. First Timothy. The church is growing so fast, Timothy is overwhelmed by the responsibility. And Paul writes, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. He also does it when he writes the book of Titus. And when you read the book of Titus, Paul says to Titus, I left you in Crete that you might set in order the things that are lacking. That's what the King James Version says. It really means to finish what I didn't finish. And then in chapter 2, this is what he says about Christians. Christians are lazy, gluttons, and liars. And now Paul has left Titus on an island with lazy, gluttons, and liars and has told them to build a good, successful church there with order. And Titus is so overwhelmed by this task that he doesn't just need Christ and peace. He needs mercy. And now Paul is writing to Timothy who likewise feels overwhelmed. He says, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. And here we find the marvelous truth 
that when we feel overwhelmed by life or our assignment, God doesn't just give us grace. He doesn't just give us peace, but God tucks mercy in between. God extends everything he has to help us when we're facing difficult times. And then he says in verse 4, greatly desiring to see thee, what does it say? Being mindful of thy tears. And most scholars say that when Paul unrolled that scroll and began to read Timothy's letter to him, he could see the stains of Timothy's teardrops on the parchment. Timothy was literally caught in his emotions. And Paul could literally see the stains of his teardrops on that parchment. And then in verse 5, Paul does something remarkable. He says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded this same unfeigned faith is in thee also. But notice the word unfeigned. It's actually the word feigned with a priviv on the front, a little a, which reverses the condition. But you have to begin with a root, the word feigned. Feigned is the old Greek word to describe the mask which was worn by an actor on a Greek or a Roman stage. And people at that time considered that there was no one lower in terms of their ethics and morals than actors. Isn't it amazing how some things never change? Because actors would put on any face to get the applause of the crowd. And if the crowd changed, they would change their mask. They would change their face. It's really the word for hypocrisy, which means a hypocrite is one who just wears a face. It's not really what he or she is, but it's a face he wears because of who he's talking to, because of the applause that he wants. And a real hypocrite is one who is so inauthentic, he will change his mask freely, just depending on who he's talking to at any moment. It's the same word that Jesus used in the Gospels when he addressed the scribes and the Pharisees and called them hypocrites. It's the same word. It's interesting that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, but nearby Nazareth was the city of Sephoris. It's where his father Joseph worked. And in the city of Sephoris, there was a theater. And Jesus was there very often to see his grandparents. Did you ever think about the fact that Jesus had grandparents? His grandparents lived in Sephoris. He went there to see his father as his father worked. And as he came into the city of Sephoris, he passed the theater where he saw actors on the stage wearing masks, inauthentic, insincere, just playing a role. And now when Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you're a bunch of hypocrites, it is literally the equivalent of saying, I know who you guys are. I've seen you before. You're nothing more than actors on the stage. You're inauthentic, insincere, a bunch of bogus phonies just performing because people are watching you. But when it becomes the word unfeigned, rather than bogus, rather than phony, it describes that which is authentic, that which is real, that which is genuine, it is unbendable, it is unbreakable. So you could translate it when I call to remembrance the unbendable, unbreakable, real, authentic, sincere faith that is in you which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois. The word dwelt is a form of the Greek word oikos, which is the Greek word for a house where you would take up residence, which means faith lived in his grandmother. She didn't just wear a mask and pretend it was who she was. It was her internal workings. 
He said, not only in your grandmother Lois, but also in your mother Eunice. So now we find faith can be passed from one generation to another generation. And finally, he says, and I'm persuaded this same authentic, real, sincere, unbendable, unbreakable faith is in you as well. It's thriving in you. It is living in you. Now, for me, the question is, if Timothy is discouraged and has a spirit of fear, why does Paul address it? by talking about Timothy's family. Because at this particular moment, Timothy is forgetting something very important. He's looking at a mountain that is in front of him. He's facing something so huge, he doesn't know if he'll ever be able to survive this one. And now Paul says, Timothy, 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 let me remind you of a few things. I knew your grandmother Lois. She had a real faith, a sincere faith. It was a genuine faith, unbendable, unbreakable. It lived in her. She passed it to your mother. Your mother had the same unbendable, unbreakable, real, sincere, authentic faith. And now I'm persuaded this same faith has been passed to you, and it's alive in you as well. Paul is reminding Timothy of his past. The only reason the mountain he's looking at seems so big is because it's the one that he's looking at at that moment. But Paul says to Timothy, turn around and remember your past. God's role in your life, in your family, and God's faithfulness is a part of your family heritage. Your grandmother had a real faith. It thrived. It was sincere. It was authentic, unbendable, unbreakable. God never failed your grandmother with all the things she went through. Your mother had the same unbendable, unbreakable faith. God never failed her. It was a real working faith. And now God is going to be faithful to you. And here's the thing. When we are dealing with the spirit of fear, it usually is because of a bad memory. It's a bad memory. You're just focused on what you're facing. But if you will take Paul's admonition in this verse and apply it to your life, you'll put the present on pause and turn around and remember your past. And if you remember your past and walk through everything you've already been through in life, you'll find that you've been through past mountains, you've been through past ordeals that you never thought you would survive. And when you faced every one of them in the past, they also looked insurmountable. You didn't know how you would be healed, but you got healed. You didn't know if you'd have a roof to live under, but you have one. You didn't know if you'd have enough food to eat, but you've eaten so much food, now you need to quit eating food. God has absolutely been faithful, but in every one of those events, you probably thought, can I ever get through this one? And by the time you remember these things and walk through each one of them, by the time you get up to the present mountain you're facing, it doesn't look so big after all. It's no worse than anything you haven't already been through. You've come through every one of them. God has never failed. He has never left you, and you're going to get through this one as well. And that is why he then says in verse 6, wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God. And if you read this in the Greek text, it says it very differently. The Greek literally says, 
Listen to this. I'm reminding you of these things. What things? I'm reminding you about your grandmother's faith that never broke, it never failed. God was always faithful to your grandmother. I'm reminding you about your mother and all the things that she went through, but her faith never failed. Her God was always faithful. I'm walking you through all of these things. I'm reminding you of these things. And then the Greek says that by your remembering them, you might stir up the gift of God that is in you. Well, all of us want to have the gift of God in us stirred up. And most people think the only way you can have it stirred up is somebody lays hands on you. But hey, what if you can't find anybody to lay hands on you? Or what if you try to call everybody on your phone list? Nobody's answering the phone, but you need your faith to be stirred up on the inside of you. The fire of God needs to be stirred up. What are you going to do if there's nobody available to help you? Paul tells us what to do. I'm reminding you of all these things that by your remembering, everybody say your remembering, you might stir up the gift of God. And here we find that God has put a divine poker into every one of our hands. Now, if he had said, memorize scripture and you'll stir up the gift of God, somebody could really say, I have a hard time memorizing scripture. If he had said, fast, some people would say, well, I have problems with my diet and I, I can't fast. But instead, he tells us something that we can all do. Remember, remember. I'm reminding you of these things that by your remembering, and the Greek tense is remembering and remembering and remembering and remembering and remembering and remembering, you might stir up the gift of God. And again, by the time that Timothy walks through all the past, everything God has already miraculously did, he will be so stirred up by the time he faces this present thing, it will not seem so big after all because he will have reminded himself and a reminding and stirring and stirring and stirring, he will have stirred up the fire of God that is in him. Well, when Denise and I first moved our family to the Soviet Union in 1991, and at that time it was the Soviet Union, the only heat we had in our house was coal. Have any of you ever burned coal for heat in your house? That's an experience. If you don't put coal into the oven, you're not going to have heat. The first winter we lived in the former Soviet Union, it was so cold that year, we burned six tons of coal in our little house. And our son, Paul, who is our eldest son, was eight years old at the time. Every morning he'd put on his little jean jacket. He would take two buckets, walk out into the front yard, and we watched Paul that winter carry six tons of coal into the house, bucket by bucket. And if you want the fire to keep burning, you've got to work the fire all the time. And if you let the fire go out, not only does the fire go out, but the coals turn hard as a rock. If they turn hard as a rock, it's hard to get the fire going again. You've got to bust it up, pull it out easier just to keep working the fire and working the fire and working the fire. But if you want the fire to keep burning, guess what? You can't deal with just today and tomorrow. You've got to deal with it every hour, every hour. You've got to be stirring the coal, stirring the coal, stirring the coals, putting in more fuel. And that's the word which Paul uses here, which means if we want our fire 
to blaze, if we want to be a life ablaze, it will only happen if we have intentionality. We've got to be stirring the embers, stirring the embers, stirring the embers, reminding us of God's faithfulness, stirring, 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 so that that fire remains alive and active in our lives. If not, the fire will begin to go cold. Now, if it's already gone cold in your life, you can reignite the flame. But my friends, it's going to take a real decision for you to do it. You can do it, but it's easier to keep the fire burning. And then Paul adds in verse 7, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Notice here he says that fear is a spirit. How many of you know that fear is spiritual? How many of you ever watched a movie that you knew you shouldn't have been watching? Maybe a horror flick or something scary. Your spirit kept telling you, don't watch this, don't watch this, and suddenly you felt fear come. That's because fear really is a spirit. And the word fear that is used here, the Greek word delay, guess what it means? In some newer translations, it says God's not giving you a spirit of cowardice. Because the word delay describes a person who becomes so self-focused. That's what a spirit of fear does. You become so self-absorbed with what about me, what about me, what about me, what's going to happen to me, what if this, what if this, what if this, what if this, that you're no longer advancing like you previously did, but now you become so obsessed with protection that you begin retreating, you're backing up, which is the opposite of faith. The word faith in the New Testament is the word pistis. The tense used describes something like a bullet that's been shot out of a gun. Faith is always taking you forward. But if you are in retreat, then you're not moving in faith. And now Timothy is in retreat. He's no longer thinking about how to take more territory, but how to protect myself. What if, what if, what if, what if? And Paul says, God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of what? Power and of love and of a sound mind. The word power is the word dunamis. And probably most people have heard this word dunamis. And if I were to ask you, what does the word dunamis say? How would you answer? Power, what kind of power? Dynamite power. That's all right. That is a very shallow understanding of the word dunamis. The word dunamis was the word used both by the Greeks and the Romans to describe the full might of an advancing army. It was the equivalent of saying, Timothy, you have in you enough that if nobody else takes territory with you, you are a one-man army. You've got dunamis inside you. You can press forward. But there's something else about the word dunamis. And remember, Paul was a linguist. He used every word. On purpose. This word dunamis was also the word used to describe a force of nature like a hurricane, a tornado, or an earthquake. And Paul knew that. So it was the equivalent of saying, you have within you the force of a one-man army. You have in you so much power that like a hurricane, you can blow evil out of the way. Like a tornado, you can tear things up. You have enough in you like an earthquake to shake things up, Timothy. That's what's in you. And then he says, love. And the word love that is used here is the Greek word agape. One of the most difficult words to translate in the entire New Testament because it is so rich, it is so packed, 
that expositors just give up and they just translate it as the word love because they don't know how to put it in English. This word agape describes a love that can never be disappointed and never hurt. Well, remember, Timothy was hurt. He was hurt by his church because they walked out on him. Now he's hurt. Well, there's two kinds of love primarily. The word agape, which is high level, the God kind of love. Then there's the second kind of love, the Greek word phileo. This word phileo means to love like a friend. And this is the level of love that most Christians know even in their marriage. But phileo is a low level love. It's a love that says, I'm going to love you as long as you love me. I'm going to pat you on the back as long as you pat me. I'm going to give you a back scratch as long as I get a back scratch. But the day I don't get a back scratch, I'm out of this relationship because I didn't get out of it what I wanted. And that's the level of love that even most Christians move in. Which means, and please forgive me, but I've had to say this to myself, when I've become disappointed in other people because they didn't give back to me what I wanted, rather than think about them, I've decided to think about me. It means I was moving in a lower love. I need to step it up a notch. Agape is a love that has no expectations and no strings attached. The Bible tells us in John three sixteen, for God so... Love the world. That's the word agape. He just loved the world. Yet John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. If Jesus had been moving in Philo, he would have said, huh, What is this? I've left glory. I've come to earth. I've been through all this. You don't even receive me. I'm out of here. I'm done with you. But he was moving in agape. And when you move in agape, you don't love to get a response. You don't love depending on how people react. You just freely love, which means agape is a self-willed love that cannot be disappointed. And on a human plane, the best illustration of agape is when your infant was placed in your arms for the first time. It's the purest human level of agape. When that baby was placed in your arms, how many of you can remember that moment? And instantly, you loved. Everything in you was compelled just to love and love that child, to give yourself to that child. But at that moment, that baby didn't even know who you were. That baby couldn't say, hello, mom, hello, dad. Baby had no verbal response to give, had no emotional response to give. The only thing the baby was going to do was take your milk, take your sleep, take your time, and give you a lot of dirty diapers. And even when the baby made dirty diapers, you laughed and said, is that just the most wonderful thing? Why? Because you were loving with the purest kind of love. That's what agape is. And according to Romans chapter 5, that is the kind of love which has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Agape is in us. Timothy needed to be reminded. Timothy, embrace the power. You have it. Embrace the love you need to continue your ministry. You have the highest kind of love in you if you'll just embrace it. And they add, then he added, and a sound mind. The Greek word sophron is most compound of two words. The first word is the word sozo. The word sozo means to heal, to deliver, to set free, to unshackle. The second word is the word friend. 
P-H-R-E-N. It's where they got the old science of phrenology. It has to do with the mind. It has to do with the brain. It has to do with the intellect. But when you compound the two words together, it forms the long word sophrenizos, which describes a mind that is completely unshackled. And because it is unshackled, it is not prone to think illogical things. It thinks rationally. It thinks logically. But if you're operating under a spirit of fear... You can't think rationally. You can't think logically. Because fear is operating in your mind. You begin to imagine all the things that could possibly happen to you when in fact they will probably never happen to you, but it seems so real to you. Or you begin to worry, what are, what's everybody thinking about me? What's everybody saying about me when the fact is nobody's thinking about you and nobody's saying anything about you. But because you have a spirit of fear, you're just self-obsessed. Spirit of fear. And I'll give you a funny example from my life, and I'm about to wrap it up. We're going to continue this in the second service. Years ago, I was showering. It's after Denise and I got married. And I found a little lump in my chest. I'd never felt that before. And I began to punch it. It felt kind of hard. And I heard if you had something hard, a lump that was hard, it probably was dangerous. So a month or two months went by, and every day I'm punching it when I take a shower, just punching and punching it. Then I thought, you know, I need to start measuring this thing to see if it's getting bigger or smaller. So now I'm punching it, and I'm pinching it every single day. And my whole life suddenly is dominated by this little thing in my chest. When I'm driving down the street, I find my hand slowly going up to come between my shirt to punch and to pinch. I'm thinking about this thing all the time, wondering if I have something that is fatal or terminal. This little thing in my chest began to dominate me so much that I decided before I went to see a doctor first, I need to increase my life insurance policy so that if I'm diagnosed with something terminal. I'm going to make sure I have enough money for Denise to be covered. And we only had one baby at that time. I wondered who was going to marry Denise and who was going to raise our son when I was gone. And now for months, I'm just living under this thing in my chest. Denise said, go to the doctor. Go to the doctor. Go to the, well, what if he tells me what I fear? But you know what? Information never hurts. It always helps. Information always helps and often puts an end to a spirit of fear. So I went to the doctor and he said, crawl up on this table. He gave me a little shot so I wouldn't feel anything. Took out a scalpel and he says, I'm just going to cut that thing. We're going to see what it is. So he cut. He pushed. And whatever it was, I felt it come out. And the doctor said, Ay, ay, ay. That's all that he said. That's a horrible thing for a doctor to do. I said, Doctor, just finish that sentence. Just please tell me, what did you find? He said, Rick, that is the funniest little piece of fat I've ever seen in my life. He said, I was punched. It just popped right out. I'm laying there thinking. I have lived the last months of my life dominated by a funny little lump of fat in my chest. And then I said to the doctor, is there any way you could do that to my whole body? 
But you see, that's an irrational mind. Now, how many of you have had irrational thoughts before, a spirit of fear that just dominated you, made you afraid of facing what you need to face? But God has given you power. You're a tornado. You're a hurricane. You're an earthquake. You're a one-man force. He has given you love that can never be hurt, never disappointed, and he has given you a mind that soundly thinks. And he's given us memory, memory. I'm reminding you of these things that by your remembering, remembering, and remembering. And by the way, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, you have to call to remembrance things. If your mind is playing tricks on you, you're going to have to make yourself remember God's faithfulness in the past. But wait, there's something else very important. Paul tells us we must do to to be set free from a spirit of fear. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next service because we're out of time.